Good morning. Good morning. How's everyone doing? Happy Mother's Day once again. Uh, what an awesome day. Uh, all the moms in the room, uh, you look amazing. And all the future moms, you look awesome as well. So way to, way to, way to show up great. Um, so excited uh, to be here. So excited to uh, share uh, the word with you. Before we, we dive into the scripture that, that we'll be unpacking, I want to uh, share two other scriptures uh, as I announce something really awesome that we did. So 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. Uh, verse 3 through 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the Father of all mercies and the God of all comfort. That's such a sweet verse, that, that God is the God of mercy and comfort. Specifically, it says that he comforts us in all of our affliction. So not only does God meet us where we are in our affliction, uh, rather his comfort actually enables us to be a comfort for others. Paul goes on to say, uh, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And in Romans 12, 13, it says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Um, And from the very beginning, uh, we see uh, God's heart on display in in caring for what the scripture calls the least of these. Uh, Those that are lonely, those that are lost, those that are hurting, and those that are broken. And, and we see him call his saints, uh, empowering them, emboldening them to meet the needs of his creation. Um, and in doing so, uh, helping advance and create a kingdom uh, of love and mercy and hope. And, and so as, as we're uh, on Mother's Day right now, this Sunday, uh, our leadership team, we were gathering, planning, and, and asking, how can, how can we serve moms? What can we do for, for Mother's Day? And, and there are some ideas that, that got thrown out. And then um, somebody said, what if, what if we, we serve our community? Uh, what, if, what, if, what if we put our, our money, our resources uh, just back into the community? And, and, and so um, we talked about the Hayes Caldwell Women's Center. In the past, we've done some donations for them, a coat and shampoo drive, if you remember, a few, uh, a few years ago. And, and they're an incredible organization. They've been in San Marcos for 30-plus years. Um, and they're, they're our neighbors. They're, they're right across the highway next to McCoy's. And it's an incredible women's center that, that serves as an overnight shelter for women and children who are victims of abuse. And they have all sorts of amazing programs to, to help uh, people who are victims of abuse um, sort of walk and navigate through, you know, these traumatic ex- experiences. And they help equip and empower women uh, to walk in healing and wholeness. And they do all sorts of incredible work. So we said, let's, let's make a donation there on Mother's Day. And, and let's bless their incredible kingdom work that we're doing and come alongside this incredible work that they're doing to support women and children in our community. So I'm excited to announce because of your generosity and your faithful giving and tithes and offering into the Benevolence Fund, we were able to donate $1,000 to the Hayes Caldwell Women's Center. Come on, let's go. Praise God. So incredible. Uh, so I want to thank you once again for your worship, not just in singing, not just in the word, but in giving generously uh, and helping use your resources to bring life to our community, how First John 3 says. And we're believing that this would be life-giving to them and helping meet whatever expenses or needs that come up. Um, and we're committed to continue to partner alongside of them and organizations in our community uh, that are doing incredible gospel work. So thank you all once again for being a part of this. Uh, now we jump into the word. Uh, we could stop there. That's, that's fun. That's a good stopping place. But we're going to go into the Word and continue to worship God in the Word. And the Lord brought me to John chapter 12, and it's, it's an incredible 
portion of Scripture, a familiar portion of Scripture, we see these incredible themes of how do you navigate dysfunction? Uh, How do you navigate loss? Uh, How do you navigate sort of these tensions in the world with an identity that's firmly rooted in Christ? And what does it look like to give the Lord uh, extravagant worship and devotion uh, as the king that he is? So we're going to look at John chapter 12, uh, and we're going to read verses 1 through 8. John 12, 1 through 8. And I want to invite you to stand with me to honor the reading of God's word. John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Uh, I encourage you to look at the, 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 the words yourself, and um, there's something powerful about gazing into the word of God. Verse 1 says, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Uh, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Verse 4, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Uh, With the remaining time we have together, I have three points that will outline this portion of Scripture. Number one is the table. Number two is the fragrant home. And number three is the interruption. Number two, the table to the fragrant home and the interruption. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gift that you've given us in the word. Um, I pray that we would be transformed as we uh, stare into your word. Uh, Holy Spirit, uh, I ask that you would come and settle any fears or anxieties or distractions that we may have come into this place with. And I pray for just a brief moment that you would allow us in this moment and for moments to come to, to see you clearly and to enjoy you. And I pray that you would do work in our hearts, that our hearts would be made good soil to receive your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The table. Let's talk about the table. John 12, it starts off verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, uh, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Uh, This is an incredible scripture that sort of... uh, makes us ask a few questions. Uh, I've heard this shared before. Uh, I've shared it before. Whenever we see a therefore, we ask, what is the therefore, therefore? Uh, And it helps sort of bring clarity to to the overall picture of Scripture. And so what's happening in this moment um, is to be understood in light of a previous moment in John chapter 11. In John chapter 11, we see this famous story of of Jesus making um, his way to Lazarus' tomb. Uh, Jesus gets word that, that, that the brother of his beloved followers, Mary and Martha, has passed away. And Jesus is slowly, slowly making his way uh, to the gravesite. In fact, the scripture says that it, it, it was a four-day journey. And when he arrives, there's so much chaos, there's so much mourning, there's so much grieving and sadness. 
And everyone's looking at Jesus like, Jesus, you're a little late. Um, in fact, we're kind of disappointed. Uh, we know you to be this incredible prophet who has done many miracle signs and wonders. Maybe, just maybe, Jesus, if you would have arrived on time, the outcome could have been different. Something could have happened. And the people are weeping, and in the shortest verse in the Bible, it says that Jesus wept. I love that scripture. Uh, Not because it's easy to memorize, but because it really shows us that our God, the divine God creator, uh, is, is truly acquainted with our grief, uh, that, that he feels, that he's in touch with our experiences. And what moves our heart to mourn, Jesus practices what Paul wrote later on. He mourns with those who mourn. And, 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 then, and what happens next is nothing short of incredible. Uh, Jesus says, roll back the tomb. And they say, no, don't do it. It's, it's going to be smelly. He's been dead for four days. And Jesus says, do it. And then he commands Lazarus to walk out. And this man who's been dead for four days comes out of the tomb filled with new life. Everyone is going crazy. Everyone's praising. Revival is breaking out. And in this one moment, we see this uh, on display, Jesus' divinity. That the God of the universe who spoke everything into existence, who from dust spoke life and breathed his breath and created humans, this same God has the power and authority to look at dead, hopeless things and call out new life. This is what's so amazing about the kingdom of God is that everything is flipped upside down. Where we would look at death and we would think, man, this is hopeless and this is the end. Uh, We know that in the kingdom of God, where there is death, there is hope. Because hope Um, arises in our heart because death isn't the final destination. Death isn't the final stage or stop in our lives. Rather, death is the vehicle from which we cross over this life into eternal life with God. And I love how some authors have said, we're just pilgrims, we're just exiles with tents making our way through this side of heaven until we reach our final destination, our home with God. Death isn't the final word. And we see in this moment that where there is death, there is hope. And so what happens next is is we get to verse, uh, to John chapter 12, John chapter 11, an incredible mountaintop experience. Lazarus has been raised from the dead. Everyone's excited. The family is rejoicing. And it says that they came to Bethany where Lazarus was from, his hometown. And verse two says they gave a dinner for him there. Now, this is significant because the the ancient Near East custom was that you would have this ceremonial dinner after the funeral, sort of like this reception after you visit a funeral. That's what this meal was prepared for. But now, instead of a a meal of mourning, it's one of celebration. It says that Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with them at table. And what's so amazing about the table is that in this context, the table was such a sacred place. Uh, For us, uh, our table is sort of uh, the messy place in the house where we uh, keep all the stuff that we don't want to put into drawers or closets, and it just becomes this, you know, uh, housing place for a mess. Uh, For others, there's just this thick residue of children's food or baby food that one day we'll clean up. Uh, That's my house sometimes. and then, and then for others, there might not just be a table in your place. You know, you, you eat in front of the TV. But in this context, the table was a sacred place. The table was a special place. It was a place where you put on display incredible hospitality, where strangers became friends and friends became family. 
It was a table where certain meals were celebrated that commemorated and worshiped God, like certain Passover, like Passover and certain feasts. It was a place of worship. And at this table, a meal is, is, is being served. And, and, and this isn't just an ordinary table. This has become the king's table. Because King Jesus is at the table sharing a meal with his friends. And, and here's what happens next. Here's what happens in the fragrant home. John 12, 3 says that Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now imagine this. If you're sitting at the table with King Jesus and you're coming back from a journey uh, where Lazarus, the last time you saw him was laying dead in a tomb for four days, and now he's sitting at your table. You would imagine this would be sort of a glorious event. Uh, You would think to yourself that the conversation, the table talk would be like, Lazarus, what was it like wherever you were? Uh, In fact, where did you go? what was, what was that experience being dead like for four days? Or, or Jesus is your guest of honor. Jesus, how'd you do that? Come on. What'd you do? Like, what, what, what was happening here? Was there a secret power? Show us. Uh, there were the, the conversation, the curiosity would be endless because you would be in awe of King Jesus and awe that Lazarus has been raised from the dead. And you would think that the center point of the conversation would be this extraordinary event. But then there's this crazy twist in the story. Mary, who happens to be Lazarus' sister, comes out of nowhere. And the scripture says that she has a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard. Um, In other words, this really expensive perfume. And things get a bit awkward because she begins to pour out that perfume and begins to wipe Jesus' feet with her hair. This is awkward. Some would consider this scandalous. Some would say, what is, is going on here? This, this makes absolutely no sense. We're celebrating Jesus. Lazarus is home. Mary, what are you doing? And so uh, you've read this scripture. You've heard stories about this. We, we sort of uh, kind of already have a, a framework for this moment because, uh, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. But in this moment, this was totally unexpected. What does this mean? What's happening here? Well, there's a few words that kind of give us uh, clues into what Mary is doing. One is the expensive ointment made from pure nard. Uh, The Old Testament has several examples of this experience called uh, anointing the king or the prophet. It was this incredible ceremonial moment uh, where the prophet would identify who the next king would be, for example, in 1 Samuel 16. Samuel comes into town and, and he's ready to anoint the next king of Israel because Saul, the current king, has been an epic disappointment. And he says, Jesse, bring me your sons that I may anoint the next king. And, and the one son that he has an eye out for is not in the room. His name was David. And David comes and he says, this is the king. And he begins to pour out oil onto his head um, from, from, the, uh, from a ram's horn. And it was a ceremonial mo- moment of, of consecrating, setting apart this man anointing him with oil uh, and saying, this is our king, our future king. It was this awesome act of worship. And throughout the Old Testament, we see different moments like this where, where the king is anointed. And, and this idea was just as the oil was being poured out and falling upon this man, symbolically, God's spirit, God's power, God's presence was being poured on and empowering this person to be God's representative 
as the king and ruler. It was an incredible moment. We, we, we have a context for this in the Old Testament. What we don't have a context for is this moment happening with uh, your hair and on the feet. This was extraordinarily rare. We, 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 we haven't seen anything like this. But what is so incredible is that when we consider what the feet represented in this, in this uh, ancient world, it was the most demeaning part of your, of your body. Uh, the roads the, weren't that great. Uh, the the hygiene wasn't great, and so uh, the idea was that if a, the most demeaning task a servant had was to clean their master's feet, because it was the most the dirtiest, most disgusting part about them. And uh, if you're into the shoeless game, no judgment to you. We welcome you, but it is kind of it's kind of gross sometimes. But no, sh- no I'm not judging you. <laughs> uh, and so it was one of the most demeaning tasks. But we see what Mary's doing here is that when she lays down her hair, uh, this was an ancient custom of, of sort of showing reverent submission to an authority. Um, not not, not in, in a weird, forceful way, but in an honoring, worshipful way. The way that you would kneel down before a king. When a woman would lay down her hair before a king, it was this sort of uh, way of showing reverent submission and worship. And so Mary is combining all these things all these Old Testament acts of worship, anointing with oil, laying down her hair, and putting it all together. And as she's cleaning the feet of Jesus, the most uh, demeaning task, it's this form of supreme humility before her Savior. And when she's anointing and wiping his feet, it's this moment of reverently submitting to him as the king of the universe. It's this moment where Mary is in this room, and while everybody else sees Jesus a person, she sees Jesus the king, and she's going to give the king the rightful honor and glory and worship that is due to him. And what seems like wasteful and extravagant and um, almost obnoxious is received by the king because no worship is wasteful. And there's not a worship too extravagant enough that the king won't receive. And accept. And the house is filled with this fragrance of this wonderful perfume. And Mary is acknowledging that this man is King Jesus. You and I, we can acknowledge King Jesus because we, we have the scriptures, we have the word, we have the experience. But Mary, Mary had this moment where Jesus said, those who have eyes to, 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 to see and ears to hear uh, will know me um, and they will be my follower. Uh, they'll know who I am and what I've come to do. Uh, He would share this in in parables. And so Mary got a glimpse of the King Jesus. Uh, The Holy Spirit um, illuminated to her that this is the King and Savior of the universe. And in this moment, she gives herself to worship him with her most treasured and valuable possession. And then there's another interruption. Verse 4. It's supposed to be an incredible time of sitting at the table enjoying a good family meal, and, and, and you all know this. When Anytime you try to prepare a good meal and have a good time with your family, there's always a disruption. There's always some sort of dysfunctional moment. And Jesus' family wasn't uh, uh, going, they, they weren't prone to avoiding that. And, and this interruption seems sort of warranted. It's kind of awkward. Mary's doing something sort of extravagant and scandalous. There's no context for it. And so everybody's probably thinking something about this, but there's one man who stands out in the crowd and addresses it. And this is what Judas Iscariot says in verse 4. Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, 
John lets us know that he's about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? First, I want to talk about verse 4. Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, parentheses, he who was about to betray him. This is a sobering reality that we see on display in the scripture, is that you can walk with Jesus physically. You can be around Jesus' people. You can do Jesus' miracles, be with him constantly, and still not be a part of his family, still not be one of his followers. It's why Jesus says that, that, that there, there'll be a day um, where, where, where he's judging the living and the dead, and they'll, and they'll tell people, you know, I never knew you. People who did incredible works in the name of Jesus, yet they never knew Jesus. And Judas Iscariot was a prime example of this. This idea that, that you, can, you can walk in fellowship with God's people, and you can do godly things, but Jesus invites us past proximity and into what the scriptures call union. Like this deep, intimate, personal connection with the Lord of the universe where you are his and, and, and he belongs to you and you belong to him. And, and, and it's not just that, that, that you're around Jesus, but that you're so connected to him that he is your father and he calls you son and daughter. Like that's the type of relationship and intimacy that, that, that Jesus calls us into. Not one by means of proximity. Anybody can be around somebody. He calls us to union. He says that we're grafted into his family, that we're made one with him. And Judas Iscariot, uh, because of his own inward desires and, and, and selfish motives, never crossed over uh, into full union and faith in Jesus. He was, as the scripture says, destined to betray him. Tough scripture. And this is what he says in verse 5. Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Am I the only one seeing this? Do you guys not see how wasteful this is? Mary this whole time has had this incredible treasured possession and, and, and she hid it from us and, and it could have been used to at least few, you know, fund our ministry or, or help the poor. Does anybody else see what's wrong with this? 300 denarii, he said. John says that it weighed one pound, and one pound was equivalent to uh, 12 ounces. One Roman pound was equivalent to 12 ounces, so like a 12-ounce cup of coffee, a tall cup of coffee from Starbucks with this expensive ointment and perfume. And then he says, uh, Judas, who is good with numbers apparently, says it was worth 300 denarii. That one denarii represents one day's wage. So what he's saying is that this was worth more than one year's salary. This was an expensive perfume. And Judas said this could have been used. This could have been used to, 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 to feed the poor, to do other things. Can you guys not see how wasteful this is? And here's what verse 6 says. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. There's already red flags in, in, in Judas. He was the treasurer. He, he occupied the money in the group. And, and John and the disciples are becoming aware that this guy would put his hand into it and take just enough money to, to feed his selfish gain, but also not enough to, to get caught, although eventually he would on his final betrayal of Jesus. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. When Judas says this, this, this ointment could have been sold and given to the poor, he makes two false assumptions, according to, to one commentator. The first false assumption 
that he assumes is that the value of the perfume, perfume is financial. He assumes that the only value this perfume has is, is, is in monetary gain, how much money can be made from it. But the value of this perfume is not financial. The value of this perfume is, is, it, is it being used unto worship to God. And, and anything that is used to worship God or given over to him as a sacrifice, your time, your desires, your dreams, your most treasured possessions, when it's given unto the Lord, it's never wasted. Worship can never be wasted when it's given unto the Lord uh, because when we worship, we do so with this, uh, this zero uh, return on our investment expectation. We don't worship to get something. We worship to give to give love and honor and glory and praise to our king. See, he assumes that this perfume can only be used for financial gain. Mary uses this perfume, her most treasured possession, to worship King Jesus. The second false assumption that he makes is he assumes that, that, that another group of people needed it or was more important than King Jesus. Uh, He assumed that that the poor were more important than King Jesus. And so therefore, they deserved uh, the money or the contributions from this perfume. And there's no group of people. There's not a single person. There's not anything more important or more valuable than King Jesus. And what's so great about King Jesus is that when we have him set as the center of our lives and we give him all of our worship, all of our praise, only then are you able to love the people that Jesus loves from his heart, the poor, the marginalized, the broken, the afflicted, and the oppressed. Um, It's this idea that um, some scholars point out the difference between philanthropy and charity. Uh, philanthropy comes from uh, the Latin word love for humanity. And, and love for humanity is, is a pure thing, loving other people and giving yourself unto them. But what eventually this turns into is, is sort of like selfish motivation, selfish gain. Look how much I can give. Look how much I can do. Whereas charity is not motivated from a love of humanity, but a love of God, uh, grace-motivated giving. This idea that you're so compelled by God's love and his grace, that his love and and his grace compels you to do good, to love others, to serve the least of these, to give of yourself generously. And it's only when we first love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and we're completely devoted to him, can we love others the way he has called us to, from his heart. You see, Judas made this uh, mistake thinking that, that there was another group of people that could have been serviced better. But the only way that they could be served well is if they love God with all their heart, soul, and mind. And then from that place, move into serving the poor or the least of these that God has called, God has called them to do. There was nothing practical about this moment. And yet Judas's bias, his perspective of the situation was rooted in his mistaken identity. John 6 says he did not care about the poor because he was a thief. John calls it out. He says Judas's identity was not as a disciple, not as a follower of Jesus, but his identity was a thief, 
one who robbed for selfish gain to fund and pursue his own selfish desires. And because of his identity as a thief, when he looked into this moment, he filtered it through his identity. And instead of seeing a moment of worshiping and praising the king, what he saw was a moment of great monetary loss. Why? Because his identity began to frame and shift the way he saw the situation. And a case of mistaken identity will lead to all sorts of chaos and brokenness in your life. If your identity is not firmly fixed and rooted upon Jesus Christ and seeing the world through God's lens of love and grace, your identity will be rooted and fixed upon something or someone else. And that something or someone else will always call the shots and they're never in your favor. If your identity is just rooted on your career and who you can become and how much money you can make, you will sacrifice to that idol. Uh, You will sacrifice time with family. You will sacrifice integrity and you will do whatever you can to get what's yours. Even if it creates all sorts of brokenness and destruction. If your... uh, Identity is rooted on a relationship or the idea of what a relationship could be. You will filter all of your decisions and all of your life through, ev- through, through attaining that goal. Whether it means becoming this certain type of person that you perceive will be liked or wanted or giving undeserved attention to people that God has not called you to be in. And you'll begin to look for satisfaction and pleasure in all the wrong places instead of building your life on God. A case of mistaken identity will lead to all sorts of brokenness and chaos and division uh, within yourself and within the world around you. And Judas had this mistaken identity. He was identified as a thief. And instead of seeing worship, he saw a moment where it was just wasteful and practical and uh, a loss, a big loss of monetary gain. And the thing about worship is that it doesn't always have to be practical. It's not always efficient, but it's never wasted. Why? Because the Lord receives our worship. When we come to him and and we sing or or we present our, our desires or our prayers to him, he will always receive them. And here's what happens next. This is so amazing. I just love this scripture so much. If you have trouble believing that Jesus is a good shepherd, look no further than verse 7 is watch how Jesus protects his flock. Jesus said, leave her alone. That's incredible. That is so good. This, this, uh, Mary is giving herself unto worship, acknowledging Jesus as the true king of Israel. Everybody is looking at her, unspoken, maybe criticizing her. Judas uh, rebuking her. This, this was a waste. And Jesus, the good shepherd who protects his flock, says, leave her alone. This is incredible because in this context, a, a woman's voice was, was, was disregarded. It, it, it was counted for nothing. Uh, the woman had no say in the room, but this woman is in the room. She's with King Jesus. Jesus her, acknowledges her presence, affirms her, and protects her and says, leave her alone. She's mine. She belongs to me. Jesus is a good shepherd who will protect his flock. Jesus is a good shepherd who cares for you and who loves you. And he says, leave her alone uh, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. 
the idea here is that this is six days before Passover, so Jesus knew that the cross awaited him. He would be the king that would be enthroned on the cross and crowned with thorns, uh, pouring himself out for you and I. And when he would be buried, the, the ceremonial procedures called for anointing his body with oil to keep that, that, that smell of death um, from uh, consuming um, the, the grave and the tomb. He said, leave her alone. This is what Jesus says next. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. Uh, there's been a lot of wrestling with this text because it seems like Jesus is neglecting the poor, even though he spent so much time and so much teaching on the poor, saying the, the, the poor in spirit will inherit the kingdom of God. He's saying, uh, I'm, I'm connected to the poor. I, I hear the poor. The kingdom of God belongs to them. Jesus has spent so much time lifting up the poor. No other religion in the world spends as much time honoring and caring for the poor in the least of these as Christianity does. Why? Because God has a heart for his creation. Even his creation, that others would seem have no value or bring nothing to the table. He makes a space for them in his kingdom. And so there's two things that, that this, this means. When he says, for the poor you always have with me, but you do not always have me, this is kind of like a rebuke to Judas because what he's saying is that, Judas, you'll always have the poor with you, but you're never going to do anything about it. You're always going to be a critic, and you're always going to call out what the church should be doing and, and what it's not doing, and there's always going to be people who says, we should do this and, and we should do that, but knowing good and well, you'll never do it. Why? Because your heart is not motivated by love for God. It's motivated by selfish desires. And what Jesus is saying is that if you want to care for the poor, if you want to care for the broken, if you want to care for the lost, if you want to care for the hurting, it starts by caring and loving Jesus with all your heart, soul, and mind, and loving him more than anything this world has to offer. And in doing so, your heart begins to get connected to his heart and his spirit emboldens you and empowers you to do what Jesus did, to love the hurting and care for the broken. And that's what Jesus is calling us to. Now, uh, what, do we, what, what does this mean for us? Uh, what do we do with this? Um, uh, I'm sure you're not going to have a guest at your house that you're going to anoint their feet with your head of oil. I'm, I'm sure you're not going to have a moment like this in your home. So, so what do we do with this? Where, where do we go from here? What is, what is God calling us to believe and do and repent of? I want to take us back to the beginning. Why are we here? Why is this happening? Why is this all going down? Remember, Lazarus is at the table when we look at verse 1 or verse 2. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table. We're here in this moment. We're seeing this story play out. We're in this chapter of Scripture because King Jesus, God of the universe, has just raised Lazarus from the dead and called him out of the tomb. And now we're having dinner at his house, celebrating the awesomeness of our God with the incredible miracle that we see performed in Lazarus's life. That's why we're here. That's why this all has started. And what's so incredible to see is that the reason why Lazarus is at the table, the reason why Lazarus is in the room is because Jesus is in the room. It's because Jesus is at the table. Do you see this? Lazarus would not be sitting at this table if Jesus wasn't at this table. Lazarus wouldn't be present if Jesus wasn't present because Jesus called them out of the dead into resurrection life. 
And if Jesus wasn't there, then Lazarus would still be in the tomb. And, and, and the reason why we're here, the reason this story is taking place is because Jesus has resurrected Lazarus and Jesus has shown us that he is the author of life, the God of the universe. And that's why we're here. So what does this mean for us? When you take a seat at God's table, it's not because you're great and you're awesome and you brought over an incredible dish or an appetizer or because you're this uh, worthy guest of honor. When you take a seat at God's table, it's because Psalm 23 says that he has prepared a place for you there. He has prepared a place for you that is completely independent of your status, of your past, present, future, of your mistakes and accomplishments. He has prepared a place for you at his table simply because he loves you and he invites you into family and union with him, not because of how awesome you are, but because he has died for you and has carved out a seat for you in his kingdom. So that means that when you sit at the table of God, the only reason you're present is because Jesus is present. And just like he called Lazarus from death into life, he has called us from death into life. He has transferred us from the dominion of darkness into his kingdom of light. And so when we're sitting at the table with God, when we're communing with him, it's important that we remember we're there because Jesus is there. And so what this means is that these moments of epic failure and disappointment, they don't remove you from the table. They remind you that Jesus' grace is sufficient to keep you there, to sustain you, to love you through it. And yet what's so incredible about this moment is that it should be a moment of glory. It should be a moment of high praise. It should be a moment of joy. Lazarus is back. Jesus is here. Bring out the fattened calf. Let's party. And then it kind of turns into this weird moment of dysfunction and chaos. To like this weird family argument. And really what this shows me, and what I believe one of the things that the scripture reveals is that in chapter 11, Lazarus can be raised from the dead. And in chapter 12, there can be dysfunction and turmoil in the household. And yet Jesus is present in both. So what this means for you and I is that you can be on the heels of this glorious, great experience with God and in that same breath experience weird dysfunction and chaos, doubt, fear. And yet nonetheless, God is still present with you. And what this shows us is that, is that the experiences that you have in life, maybe you're experiencing your own family dysfunction. Maybe you're experiencing your own chaos and turmoil or doubt or identity crisis. What this scripture shows us is that if you're in that place, Jesus is in the room with you. And that he calls us to devotion to him and to worship him. And our worship of him, our giving ourselves unto him, is how our lives are redirected and rearranged so that we can live in all that God's called us to be. It's not found in looking inward. It's looking outward and pouring ourselves unto King Jesus and letting him be the Lord of our lives. The second thing uh, that this, the, the, that's so incredible about this moment that I, that I want to point out is this uh, John uh, makes it a point to, to say that the room was filled with this incredible fragrant smell. And uh, Paul draws on this. Uh, in Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 2, he says, uh, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, verses 15 through 16, he says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Now, in the ancient Near East, the idea of odor producing life or death was very common. Uh, Still kind of common now. Uh, It's the idea that certain smells may repulse us or or warn us of something off or deadly. Like like smelling the the gallon of milk to see if it's still good. Or um, smelling body odor. Like, oh, that's, that's tough. Um, or how other smells can attract us and can draw us in. These life-giving smells that take us back to a memory or back to a place. The smell of walking into a loved one's home or a family member's home that you haven't seen in a while. Uh, the, the, the smell of, 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 of their laundry detergent or the candles or the scents or, the, or the, the ingredients that they use that fill the kitchen. These smells that take us back somewhere that are life-giving. And what Paul is doing in this moment is that he's actually drawing on this ancient tradition. Um, in Rome, whenever uh, Rome would go in, 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 uh, on a war or a battle to, to, con- uh, to conquer an enemy, uh, whenever they would come back in victory, there would always be this parade, this incredible ticker tape parade, uh, where they're celebrating you know, this incredible victory. And so they would navigate the streets of Corinth, where Paul is, and, and they would celebrate, we have, we have won. We have won the victory. We have defeated the enemy. And so uh, this parade included uh, numerous uh, uh, burnt offerings, sacrifices to idols. And, and these idols uh, would, would be burned in such a specific manner with specific incense and specific smells that would fill the city. And what Paul is saying and what the idea is, is that whenever these smells this would fill the city, Kind of like a barbecue, you know, at a cookout. Like, you know you're walking into a good party when you just hear and smell the the fajitas or the chicken just hitting the grill. You know, like, it's going to be a good time. You know something special is happening. The same idea was there, where they would smell these incense, these burnt offerings being given over to idol worship. But the people of Rome would know we're victorious, we're living. Now, there was a flip side of this. Because part of the tradition in this parade is that they would, they would carry with them captives, prisoners of war, enemies that they've defeated. And sort of the final stop of this parade was the enemy's public execution. This kind of like final stamp saying that we've won. We've conquered the enemy. So to the Romans, those who've experienced victory, they smell this aroma and it's aroma of life. We're victorious, but to the prisoners and to the captives, they smell the aroma and it's an aroma of death. That death is awaiting. And Paul is drawing on this and he's, and he's saying that, that we are the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. In other words, uh, for the Christian in the room who carries the gospel and embodies the gospel and lives out this good word, when you, when you put this message, when you, when you give this message, people are going to hear this message and there's going to be people that are so dead in their sin that they can't comprehend the grace and love of God and they're going to stay dead. And that this aroma of Christ, this, 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 this uh, incredible news of the gospel would just be an aroma of death to death, the same way that these people who were captives and prisoners of war are passing from death, captivity, imprisonment, to final death and execution. But he says for those for others, this aroma, this good news is this aroma of new life. 
that there's going to be people who hear the gospel, who hear the good news, who hear the love of a Savior, and it's going to awaken something inside of them that causes them to cross over from death into life and faith in Christ. And to them, it's going to be an aroma, a sweet life-giving smell, something that symbolizes um, this great act of worship um, and salvation that we see on the cross. And what's so incredible is that we have this experience, we have this victory. Because the same way that this woman pours out the oil, pours out this perfume before Jesus' feet in this extravagant act of worship, Jesus goes one step further and pours out his blood and gives his body, the most treasured possession in all of the universe, and nails it to a cross so that you and I can become this fragrant aroma to God so that our stench of sin, our smell of sin, the rottenness of sin that causes death can be replaced, can be removed and covered with the precious fragrant blood of Christ. One that is a fragrant aroma that Paul says to God. See, Jesus gives of himself. Jesus pours out his blood in this act of worship to the Father so that our aroma of sin can be covered with his aroma of grace. And so as we come to the table, I want to ask you two questions that will prepare our heart to worship God in communion. First one is, is when, you, when, when you see Jesus or when you think about Jesus or when you hear about Jesus or even look at the scripture, what do you see? Or who do you see? Do you see another person, another historical figure? Do you see just a, another random guy in the scriptures? Or do you see the king? Uh, do you see what Judas saw? A moment of waste. A blunder. A moment that could have been used for his own selfish gain. Or do you see what Mary saw? The king of the universe who was all deserving of uh, extravagant praise and worship. It reminds me of this story. Um, it's been shared countless times uh, of the Moravian missionaries, this group of missionaries in, in Europe uh, who were captivated by the gospel, who, who, who were sold out for the mission of God. Uh, so much so that they actually sold themselves into slavery so that they could hop upon these, these, these slave trading ships and get on these slave trading routes so they could share the gospel with people who had been robbed and given and sold into slavery and that they could arrive at these islands and, and, and advance the kingdom of God. And uh, it, it was mind-blowing. There, there had never been a missionary movement like this. And everybody was, was curious and, 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 by, and, and just perplexed. And the story goes that as, as if they're off sailing and making their way to sea, these families are yelling out, why are you doing this? There's other ways to do it. There's more practical ways to be a missionary. There's more efficient ways to serve God. There's, there's less wasteful ways to give yourself unto the king. Why are you doing this? And I love their response. It says, they say, no sacrifice is too great for the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the earth. That no sacrifice 
is too great for the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that no sacrifice is too great. Even if it means death, we welcome it because it means new life in Christ. Even if it means persecution, we praise God because the scripture says that just as they persecuted him, they will persecute us also. So, So what an incredible honor it is to be identified with Christ in our suffering. That no sacrifice was too great for the king of the universe. And that was Mary's position. That was Mary's heart. Church, do you believe that? Do you believe that no sacrifice is too great for the king of kings? Sacrificing our desires, sacrificing our dreams, sacrificing our ambitions, sacrificing our career choices, sacrificing our comfort and our travel schedules. Sacrificing a little bit out of our grocery budget so that we can give and be generous. Do you believe that no sacrifice is too great for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? Who do you see when you see Jesus? What do you see? Do you see worship or do you see waste? On the night that Jesus was betrayed and and handed over to be crucified for our sins, he took the bread and cup and said, this is my body which is given to you. Uh, My body which will uh, hang on the cross. I'm the king, but I'm not going to be enthroned uh, upon a royal seat. I'm going to be enthroned on the cross. And I'm going to pour myself out for you the same way that Mary has poured out this precious oil in an act of worship. I'm going to pour myself out for you and take upon God's wrath and judgment for your sin so that you can be received as children of God, so that you can be welcomed into my family, so that in one moment you can rest assured and secure forever, that you can take a seat at the table because I've prepared it for you. You can live in my home and reside in my house because I paid the ultimate penalty, the ultimate cost for your death to give you new life. My body will be broken for you and my blood will be poured out for you. And it's the blood of the new covenant. The blood that says you and I can experience union, relationship, new life in Christ. Not because of our accomplishments, but because of his sacrifice for us on that cross. So as you come to the table and as you receive, what needs to be emptied inside of you? Maybe it's a case of mistaken identity. Maybe you're building your life on something or someone else other than Jesus. Would you repent and ask the Holy Spirit to help you build your life on Christ? Maybe you're just consumed by worldly desires and passions and just trying to figure out how to make a name for yourself or how to satisfy your own pleasures and desires. Would would you repent? And come and see how Jesus meets all of your needs, satisfies every single longing of your heart, and gives us what we could not attain on our own, our greatest need, new life in him, a relationship with God. Would you empty yourself? Would you pour yourself out in extravagant devotion and worship to God and receive the gift of new life as we remember him in communion? Uh, The most important instruction is that communion is a gift from God for the people of God. Uh, If you're not a Christian, feel free to sit this out. But if you want to cross over into faith and say yes to Jesus and experience new life in him, he invites you to come to the table and receive his life, his body, his blood, 
It's as simple as saying, Jesus, I want to make you the Lord and Savior of my life. I want to live for you and turn away from living for myself. And friend, family, he has prepared a place for you at his table in his home. I want to invite you to stand, I want to invite you to stand with me as we read our communion confession together. This will help prepare our hearts for communion. And at any time during this next song, I invite you to come and taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's read together.